America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great day for people who see themselves as movie fans because they announced the nominees for the Academy Awards coming up. And uh, there were some fairly welcome surprises, plus the normal array of so-called snubs. I don't think that term is ever particularly appropriate because uh, a snub makes it sound like it's an insult. And this is basically just an election. And it's an election where certain candidates get more votes than others. Uh, and this time, actually, some of the most popular films of the year got serious consideration for the Oscars uh, for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress. Uh, that's, uh, again, a change in recent years where they seem to try to emphasize and promote films that had very limited appeal. We will get to that a little bit later this hour on The Michael Medved Show. There's uh, also this question about uh, the latest series of attacks, and there are plenty of attacks, on uh, Governor DeSantis. And it's, it's one of those things where Governor DeSantis has shown such good political judgment and has obviously built himself up into a national figure with um, a, a lot of stands that appeal to people. But it appeared, uh, before you actually take a look at it, that he might have made a mistake recently when he rejected a, uh, a pilot from the college board that uh, a pilot program called the uh, AP African American Studies course. In other words, the AP advanced placement courses that you can take in high school and that are counted in most places for college credit and I remember doing this with advanced placement English in uh, when I was a high school student and sure enough got college credit for it and that's always helpful but they uh, had initiated a program on African-American studies and by opposing that pilot program in his state of Florida, it sounded like uh, Governor DeSantis was opposing any kind of recognition of African-American studies as a valid uh, theme. But uh, here is what uh, the governor of Florida had to say about this issue. And uh, it, is he right? Well, we'll give you a frank, full, and fearless answer in a moment. Here's Governor DeSantis. Black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And so we're on, that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards. We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them. When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory, uh, you are clearly trying to use that uh, for political purposes. 
Well, it's, it's more than that. There's also a great deal of this curriculum, if you take the time to look at it, that uh, pushes an agenda of reparations, which uh, we are going to talk about uh, coming up in uh, a few minutes with Stephen Hayward, who had actually exposed some of the extreme reparations proposals that the state of California had advocated and uh, the city of San Francisco. We will get to that. But uh, the uh, there's a piece in uh, National Review that actually led me to see as much as we can see that's been made public so far of the curriculum structure for this uh, APAAS, that's the Advanced Placement African American Studies course plan. It's not African American studies. It's basically uh, critical race theory again. And it's attempted to press uh, a, an agenda, just as Governor DeSantis said. Uh, taken together, writes Stanley Kurtz in the National Review, the curriculum framework and the teacher's guide expand our understanding of the course in a way that confirms the wisdom of DeSantis's decision. Now, what is he talking about? Is the inclusion of people who are featured in the teacher's guide that they want to teach high school students so they get advanced credit to be counted in colleges across the country. The, um, the uh, fourth quarter of the course features a topic on the movement for black lives, which uh, was started, and they make it clear, by Marxist organizers who founded Black Lives Matters. Yet the movement for black lives extends far beyond BLM, encompassing over 170 black-led organizations. The... Uh, they also include uh, the work of Robin D. G. Kelly, uh, the real purpose of the platform, and in his work, he says, is a blueprint for social transformation, radically changing the structure of American society by shifting away from market principles and toward collective ownership of certain economic institutions and a universal basic income. Uh, does this sound like they're learning history or learning a blueprint for the future. Uh, Kelly also highlights the expansive nature of what he calls the movement for Black Lives' most controversial demand, reparations. For the movement for Black Lives, the concept of reparations goes far beyond massive monetary rewards and includes even, quote, mandated changes in the school curriculum that acknowledge the impact of slavery, colonialism, and Jim Crow in producing wealth and racial inequality. The, uh, it, it goes on here, and uh, the three subjected uh, items for study in the reparations topic are Ta-Nehisi's Coates article, The Case for Reparations, a button that the teacher's guide says serves to promote reparations for the Tulsa race massacre, uh, the copy of H.R. 40, a federal bill that sets up a commission to develop proposals for reparations. It's clear from these assignments, writes Stanley Kurtz, that uh, the uh, advanced placement African-American studies itself is promoting reparations. No article criticizing this highly controversial policy is assigned uh, at all 
In other words, it is only one side. In effect, the APAAS is pushing students to lobby for legislation. And by the way, the uh, Movement for Black Lives also endorses H.R. 40, so students will find the same de facto call to legislative lobbying waiting for them in two successive topics in this curriculum. The uh, guide stresses Franz Fanon's interest in anti-colonial violence. It then connects Fanon's work to the belief by black radicals in the 60s and 70s that Africans in America live in a kind of internal colony, thereby justifying violence here in America. Uh, can you understand maybe why it's not so embarrassing or problematic for Governor DeSantis to actually stand in the way of using this as a curriculum in public schools uh, promoted by the college board. Um, I, I, I do think that Americans are, are all for, and it's, again, very important. I think that people should learn the history of African Americans in this country and how different it's been from the history for other ethnic groups. But uh, to learn it as history, not as propaganda. We'll be right back uh, with Stephen Hayward of University of California coming up on the MedVet Show. Stephen Hayward uh, rejoins the show. He's been a guest before, and I'm very proud to say he is a resident scholar at the University of California, Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. He's also a visiting lecturer at uh, lecturer at uh, University of California, Berkeley Law School, and uh, was previously the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Visiting Professor at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy. He uh, wrote a piece which uh, I cited heavily in the New York Post about the plans for reparations that have been put forward by commissions both for the state of California and, uh, and for the city of San Francisco. Uh, Professor Hayward, it is a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you for your work in digging through all this material. Well, thank you, Michael. It's nice to be back with you again. Well, it's it's extraordinary because you come up with a number that if the approach of the uh, state of California were applied nationwide, it would mean spending about $34 trillion, the same amount as the current national debt, on reparations, is that right? Well, that's if you use <laughs> that's if you use the lowball figure. I mean, I should say for listeners, there are two separate reports in play in California right now: one by a state commission, and one by a special commission set up by the city of San Francisco. And the state commission, even though they issued a 450-page report that's mostly the history of uh, America's sins towards Black Americans. They didn't actually name a specific figure they had in mind. But a lot of witnesses before the commission's hearings said it ought to be at least $350,000 or $800,000 a person. And I just did simple back-of-the-envelope mathematics and realized that would cost the state of California nearly $800 billion uh, on the low end and $1.8 trillion 
if you had the $800,000 a person payment. Now, that's just the state of California. Extrapolate that by the entire U.S. population, and you start coming out with multiple trillions of dollars. Uh, and then the San Francisco proposal was more absurd. They did not shrink from offering a figure. They said every black person, by the way, not descendant of a slave, but any person whose skin is black, even if a recent immigrant to the country from somewhere, they should get $5 million from the taxpayers of somewhere, San Francisco. Um, and I figured out that would be $223 billion to the city of San Francisco because they have about 45,000 blacks living there, according to the last census. Um, and extrapolate that to the whole country, and I think the number you get is somewhere around $100 trillion. Okay, so, well, well, uh, two, two questions. Numbers. Two questions here. First yeah. of all, what you're just saying, which I think is new, where there's no need to prove uh, that that you had ancestors who were enslaved. What's the justification for paying reparations to, say, a, a very successful, prosperous Nigerian immigrant? And Nigerian immigrants have done very well in the United States of America, very successful above the national average in terms of income and education and you name it. What is the justification for having to pay $5 million to a Nigerian immigrant to the United States who's never been enslaved and never had any ancestors who were enslaved? That's a great point, by the way, that you know Nigerian households have higher median income than white households. Most people don't know that. I'm glad you know that. Um, the only, uh, the only, this seems to be the, uh, you know, the, the rainbow spectrum at work here, right? Uh, that uh, you know, the, the identity politics left believes in skin color overall, or over, over everything else. We now measure your lack of justice, I suppose, by your melanin level. But it is absurd to suppose that Oprah Winfrey and Barack Obama would be eligible for reparations if they lived in San Francisco, uh, as you say. By the way, I mean the the idea of reparations for people who are descended from slaves, that's one thing. There are big problems with that, but that is at least comprehensible. And that always meant, by the way, that Barack Obama would not have been eligible for reparation for slavery since he's not descended from any slave uh, uh, families from 200 years ago. Uh, and Michelle Obama would have been. Uh, but this is erasing all of that and saying just because your skin is dark, you get to be paid money. By the way, where does that leave Hispanics who faced lots of discrimination in this country? Where does that leave Asians who weren't even allowed to be citizens of this country in many parts of the country back in the late 19th century? Uh, you know, it seems to me lots of other people have got decent historic claims to having suffered serious injustices, but we're only singling out one particular race for proposed reparations. And one particular state, and that's something I wanted to get to with you, Stephen Hayward, uh, who's a resident sure. scholar at the UC Berkeley Institute for Governmental Studies, is that when you select California, if you look at the history of California, there is no question at all that Asian people have uh, suffered more oppression and more persecution than black people. California never had slavery. Even when it was a province of Mexico, there was no slavery allowed. But the, the riots and the persecution and the legal handicaps that were applied to Chinese and Japanese people, that was extreme, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, there's, uh, you may or may not remember this from law schools. I know you went to law school many years ago. But the famous Plessy case, that was the yeah. separate from the Equal Streetcar case in the 1890s, it had the famous dissent from um, 
Justice Harlan, where he said... John Marshall Harlan, sure. John Marshall, right. Remember, he said that we our Constitution is colorblind and should not take account of caste. He also says in the part that's left out of a lot of the case books, he says, I'm, I'm astounded that we're doing this because, you know, we, we, we treat the Chinese even worse, but we don't require them to ride the separate streetcars. So blacks get to be citizens. Chinese, we don't let be citizens. And so we, we forget that little part of our history when we talk about all these racial matters that uh, uh, you know, blacks aren't the only group that suffered from you know, truly heinous behavior in our country in its past. And I okay. In its past. Yeah. So so right now, is there anyone in California who has welcomed these uh, proposals from the state of California and from the city of San Francisco? Any politician? <laughs> you you then mention in your piece that Governor Newsom has been silent as the tomb on this issue. What about yeah, Kamala Harris? Is she is she behind it? Uh, you know, I have not heard her say anything, and of course, you never know <laughs> when she speaks whether it will be coherent or not, right? Uh, look, I mean, Governor Newsom signed the bill into law that the state legislature sent to him to set up this commission for reparations. So, you know, he kind of owns it, and I think if he wants to run for, he wants to run for president, I think we know that, uh, he's going to have a big problem on his hands, and that's why I think he's staying quiet about it. And so far, I, I haven't seen the news media pressing him for an answer as to whether he supports the uh, proposals being issued. Um, I think this, look, I think to be perfectly cynical about it, this was set up during the hysteria after George Floyd's death, uh, and no Democratic politician was going to stand in the way of these kinds of efforts. And really, I think uh, because California is so crazy, it's where the, the racial politics left wanted to start. But there are other commissions in process in other states and other localities around the country. So don't think this will be the only place where you're going to see these kinds of preposterous ideas. I hope people read every word and take in all the amazing details, including the fact that some of these reparations are supposed to last for 250 years. And that's not made up. That's... Michael Medved show uh, the uh, music danger zone featured from uh, both of the Top Gun films <laughs> the one that uh, was uh, actually delivered to America in the 1980s at uh, in the Pleistocene era uh, and and the new one and by the way one of the things that's remarkable is how little Tom Cruise changed in all those years what did change, and which is very notable, was the uh, Oscar nominations were announced very early this morning. And a lot of people had been rooting for the idea that the Top Gun Maverick film would be nominated for Best Picture. They got their wish. It was. And this is part of a reflection of what has been happening in recent years, where the the Oscars ceremony itself has just been getting less and less popular every year. It's been creating new records of uh, irrelevance, meaning that fewer and fewer people tune in. And you may remember they even ex experimented with a uh, uh, a hostless format where they just had different people coming up and talking, and there would be no host. This year they're going back to a uh, uh, a traditional host. It's going to be Jimmy Kimmel. 
And yes, he can be very funny. And uh, you remember last year it was um, they had uh, Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer and Regina Hall uh, all acting as sort of pandemic era hosts, joint hosts. Uh, that's giving way to a regular single host. And they, they also have a bunch of big box office successes, which they don't often do that are nominated for Best Picture. The Best Picture nominees quickly, and there are 10 of them, and I think they expanded it to 10. We're requiring the 10 get nominees, the 10 leading vote-getters. Uh, the films nominated for Best Picture are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, uh, which uh, is a hugely successful film. It's earned over $2 billion so far even more than the Top Gun Maverick film. Uh, but some of that earning, of course, has been in 2023. The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is the early favorite in the betting. I don't know why. I think it's the most overrated film of the year, but that's me. Uh, the Fablemans, uh, Steven Spielberg's latest, Tar, a, a very artful but difficult to watch and very long film uh, about a, a symphonic conductor uh, brilliantly played by Kate Blanchett who also got nominated Top Gun Maverick uh, Triangle of Sadness which was a surprise and the ultimate injustice women talking which I know sounds like a really exciting film and uh, sorry but uh, it's um, uh, it nominated for Best Picture, uh, Best Director, and the people who are talking about these snubs talk about women being snubbed in general. The last two winners for uh, Best Director have both been female. And so you, this time the five nominees, it's actually six nominees because the Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, co-directed everything everywhere all at once and uh, so you actually have six men who are nominated including the uh, director Ruben Ostlund in his English language film debut uh, for Triangle of Sadness which is a very strange film and uh, it's extraordinary that he's nominated uh, even when his film is not um, what uh, happened in terms of other so-called snubs? Well, there's a list of snubs that's put together by Patrick Ryan over at USA Today. And he lists Top Gun Maverick not because it didn't get nominated for Best Picture. It did. But it didn't get nominated for Best Director and or Best Actor for Tom Cruise and also did not get nominated for Best Cinematography. And which is absurd. It had absolutely spectacular cinematography, as I think people who saw the film would appreciate, especially considering all those real, not computer graphics generated, but real aerial flight scenes uh, that were remarkable and that dazzled the world. So, okay, strange fact that it, it didn't make it for cinematography. They also list Viola Davis for The Woman King, uh, uh, it, which was a fairly successful movie 
And a lot of people expected uh, that Viola Davis, being a veteran actress, well-respected, would get nominated. She didn't. Uh, Adam Sandler, for who is, has been nominated by a n number of other critics' organizations, including uh, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, nominated for Hustle, which I thought was one of the better films of the year, actually. Uh, Adam Sandler didn't get nominated. And uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, even though right now Angela Bassett is the front runner to win Best Supporting Actress, uh, Black Panther didn't get nominated for uh, Best Picture. What's more stunning to me is Danielle Deadweiler, who was sensationally good. It's it's a performance you remember and you cannot forget. She played the grieving, ferocious mother, Mamie Till, uh, who was a civil rights activist and who fought for the memory of her murdered son in the film Till. And I can only assume that people didn't see the film because if you had, you would have nominated Danielle Deadweiler. And part of what happened is there was a campaign that was launched by a number of Hollywood insiders, a viral campaign, to campaign for Andrea Riceborough, who was the star of a film called Two Leslie, which nobody saw. I didn't see it. They didn't put it out there for people to see. And by the way, I, I, I looked last night at uh, how much money it has made so far. Officially, it's made $24,000 so far. No, no, not $240,000, not $24 million. $24,000 so far, which meant that they had to subpoena people to go to see it. And it's a film about, uh, as far as I can gather, a hopeless drunk and drug addict who suddenly wins the lottery in Texas, and you'll be surprised to know doesn't use her uh, funds particularly well. Uh, they also list uh, that uh, Paul Dano did not get nominated for The Fablemans, where he was terrific. And what's funny about that is it's usually very difficult to get nominated when somebody else in the same movie is uh, actually a very big contender. And what happened with that is Judd Hirsch, who's only on screen for about five minutes in The Fablemans, okay, maybe ten minutes, but it's not much. It's a long movie. Judd Hirsch is nominated and partially because his character is more eccentric and colorful. And they also suggest that Brad Pitt was snubbed because he, uh, the way Paul Ryan says it, but not Paul Ryan, that uh, uh, the uh, Patrick Ryan says about uh, Brad Pitt, the A-lister gives his most poignant performance yet in Babylon. Well, part of the reason it's so poignant is because that's a terrible movie. I mean, really an awful movie. And it was a big uh, disaster at the box office. And uh, then that uh, James Cameron didn't get nominated for Best Director, even though his uh, film uh, Avatar Way of Water was nominated for Best Picture. The truth of the matter is, as they point out here, uh, James Cameron is a seven-time Oscar nominee and a three-time winner. So, again, I, there's part of the idea that they're nominating people who, uh, other than Steven Spielberg, who are more of a, a surprise and a new face. 
Maybe it's a hint to the American electorate. The Oscars come. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there's a murder case that hasn't yet been uh, the uh, subject of an Oscar-winning movie, or any movie for that matter, because it's still in process. And uh, But it will almost surely be attracting attention because the details are so bizarre and horrific uh, about uh, it's a, a, about a uh, Brian Walsh who is uh, 47 years old in Massachusetts who allegedly murdered his uh, wife Anna Walsh. I don't know what the motive is supposed to be but it doesn't look so good for uh, the accused because bloody clothing, rags and sharp tools were among the items investigators found while searching uh, for a body uh, for Anna Walsh, a Massachusetts wife and a mother whose husband uh, Googled how to dispose of and dismember a body before she was reported missing, a uh, prosecutor said in uh, court. The uh, bloody items were recovered last week in 10 trash bags that Brian Walsh discarded over several days while he was searching online for handy tips. And you can find everything online on how to handle a dead body. This is uh, according to the uh, Norfolk First Assistant District Attorney, whose name is Lynn Beeland. Uh, it sounded, this is part of what he was searching for online. And just ask yourself, you think he might be guilty? Listen. 6 p.m. At 4.55 a.m. on January 1st, he searched how long before a body starts to smell. At 4.58 a.m., how to stop a body from decomposing. At 5.20 a.m., he searched how to embalm a body. At 5.47 a.m., 10 ways to dispose, dispose of a dead body if you really need to. At 6.25 a.m. on the 1st, how long for someone to be missing to inherit. At 6.34 a.m. on the 1st, can you throw away body parts? At 9.29 a.m., what does formaldehyde do? At 9.34 a.m. on the 1st, how long does DNA last? At 9.59 a.m., can identification be made on partial remains? At 11.34 a.m., dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body. Okay, if you um, um, are close to somebody who's doing this kind of internet searching in a very concentrated way about the best ways to dispose of a body and how long does it take before a body starts to smell, um, this this might be a little bit of an alarm bell. And an alarm bell for a lot of people who would assume that uh, President Trump had faded from view is the uh, new poll, which uh, is a poll by the uh, Emerson College. It was released today showing that President Trump holds a three-point lead over President Biden in a hypothetical 2024 rematch. 44% uh, in the poll said they would support Trump in the 2024 presidential election coming up next year compared to 41% who said they would back Biden. In other words, it's all within the margin of error. 
Another 10% said they would support someone else, while only 4% remained undecided. The 4% who remained undecided is incredibly low, which uh, it seems to me is a signifier that uh, people really know a lot about Trump and Biden, and they don't particularly like either of them. Uh, Nikki Haley was on Fox News, and she, again, as she has been, uh, she dropped broad hints that she might be maybe, maybe, maybe interested in running for high office. Listen, clip 11. I mean, look, it is time for a new generation. It is time for more leadership. It is time for the fact that we really start to take our country back. We cannot have another term of Joe Biden. And we have to remember, too, we have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. It is time that we get a Republican in there that can lead and that can win a general election. What would you say are the differences? Let's start with President Trump. I consider him a friend. We, you know, most of the policies that he did, I totally agree with. Um, and, you know, there's going to be other Republicans in the race. Most of them are my friends. You know, let the best woman win. Ah. <laughs> And, and given the fact that she she and Governor uh, Christy Noam of South Dakota, who also has faded a little bit from public view, uh, the um, uh, Nikki Haley let the best woman win could be a uh, broad hint and no pun in, intended there. Um, meanwhile, there is this from Joe Biden, and you, you just can't miss it because <laughs> if somebody could want to write to me and explain to me what the president is tra trying to say, this is clip 12. You know, when I was coming up as a kid, you know, cops were learned to, you know, required to learn to shoot to kill. Well, you ought to be able to shoot to stop. You know, everything shouldn't be an extreme. There's a, so the way we train police officers is changing. Okay. Is this related to what's going on in California to shoot to stop. Uh, fortunately, I don't think that President Biden is going to try to impose that on police departments or on law enforcement uh, nationwide. There is a new movie with Julianne Moore, who's a wonderful actress, and it's a, a film that's written and directed by Jesse Eisenberg. It apparently has some uh, autobiographical parts to it, and it is... Uh, created a lot of attention. It has an unusual title. The title, When You Finish Saving the World. And it's about an activist family where the mother and her son, who is uh, uh, completely absorbed with doing his own podcast, are at odds. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Julianne Moore plays a dedicated social worker in a shelter for battered women who has a strained relationship with her only son who is obsessed with the online fan base he has built up in When You Finish Saving the World, now playing in theaters. Mom, did you try to open the door while I was live streaming? I have 20,000 followers and I'm validated and I'm starved, which is terror hard to get. Are you happy? I think so. Why are you asking me? Something switched in you. 
This is an ambitious directorial debut for actor Jesse Eisenberg, who also wrote the original screenplay. But the mother and son characters that he creates are both so destructive and unpleasant that it will be difficult for audiences to connect. There's also a political edge about redemption coming only from far-left activism. Rated R, mostly for harsh language. Two stars for the intriguing but unsatisfying when you finish saving the world. And coming up at the uh, World Economic Forum, uh, they have um, someone who claims that the climate change crisis is both physical and spiritual. Really? Uh, we will get to what that means exactly. Uh, we will also talk about how do you ban something that is already illegal. And uh, that has to do, of course, with the various uh, uh, shootings that we've experienced recently. And uh, more on why it is that literally thousands of churches are closing their doors. We've talked about the fact that that's happening, but why exactly is it happening? And uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the world, there is coming right up the Our Crowd High Tech Summit. I mean, the World Economic Forum, uh, that's for some of the richest people in the world. But part of what's going on with the Our Crowd Summit in uh, Jerusalem is uh, that these are some of the smartest people in the world, but some 70 nations represented and some 7,000 people participating. You can read all about it and actually get some tape of what is going on and what's being presented with some of the most exciting breakthroughs in the world of high tech and in the world of startups. Uh, and it's free. Uh, just go to our website, go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner and you can see whether you yourself can participate um, if you want to in any of these our crowd events or investments go to michaelmedved.com look for the banner for our crowd my brother's company in jerusalem which includes by the way about half of its companies are american uh, that and more you can check at michaelmedved.com uh, advancing the cause and concern for this greatest nation 